0: Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are going to look at the book of Jude this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and these guys will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. The book of Jude this morning. It's great to be back. We had a little bit of a hiccup getting back, but uh, praise the Lord we're here and and made it home. Vacation was great and... uh, Decided to actually be back teaching again. It's been all months. I, I taught on the 4th of July on Sunday morning, and then that was it. We had Brent from Rome come out, and then Pastor Bruce was out, and then Doug spoke last week, and so it's good to be here. Uh, Book of Jude, title of my message is Keep Up the Fight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning. Lord, thank you for uh, for this church here, Lord, as we get into your word, Lord, you encourage us, you strengthen us to keep going, to keep moving forward, Lord, as the the world gets darker around us, Lord, you are the light, uh, Lord, that you want to shine through us, Lord, to be the light of this world. And so, Lord, we thank you for this uh, recharging time, Lord, that we can be built up and, and encouraged, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh just bless our time together. Father, we pray if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, that they would do so this morning. They would uh, see their need for you and the need to come to you in repentance and, and give their life to you. Bless our time together, we pray, Lord, we commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I found a list of the, the uh, top ten shortest books ever written. Number ten, Everything Men Know About Women. Top ten shortest book ever written. Number nine, How to Sustain a Musical Career by Art Garfunkel. You've got to be a little bit older to understand that one. Number eight, Morals and Ethics by Miley Cyrus. I didn't write them, I just found them, okay? Number seven, 101 Spotted Owl Recipes by the EPA. Number six, Things I Did to Deserve the Nobel Peace Prize by Barack Obama. <laughs> Top ten shortest books ever written. Number five, Guide to the Pacific Ocean by Amelia Earhart. <laughs> Number four, My Life in Baseball by Michael Jordan. <laughs> Number three, Things I Love About the USA by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Two more. Out of My Price Range by Jeff Bezos. <laughs> and the number one shortest book ever written, Profound Sayings by Joe Biden. <laughs> I didn't write them, but I thought they were funny. <laughs> Jude is one of the shortest books in the New Testament. Though it's relatively brief, it is nonetheless action-packed from beginning to the end. The story is told of a preacher who, after getting ready for services one Sunday morning, emerged from the bathroom with a large bandage on his face. What happened to you? asked his wife. I cut myself shaving while concentrating on my sermon, he said. Honey, she replied, you should be concentrating on your shaving while cutting your sermon." Such is the challenge that we have with this book of Jude this morning. Even though there's only 25 verses, there is so much here. Maybe you pulled up and the parking lot was still kind of full. We went a little bit over this morning. But the thing of it is, within this single chapter, there's so much here. There's eight illustrations from the Old Testament, each one containing fascinating examples and practical applications for us today. And though it's been tempting for me just to grab a couple of verses here and there and uh, and, and just kind of do it that way. I, I think it really wouldn't do it justice. I, I want to go through this whole thing as it was intended to be read in order that we might gain a feel for the book of Jude. What's the theme of the book of Jude? Apostasy. The word apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasia, uh, apostasia. Uh, comes from a Greek word, which means a defiance of an established system or, or authority, a rebellion and abandonment or breach of faith. Paul the Apostle tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, that the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, in the last days, that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Apostasy is a falling away, a departing from God's truth. In fact, you can call this epistle from Jude the Acts of the Apostates, just like we have the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts of the Apostates because uh, the church at this was in, at this time was in a state of apostasy. There were people who had outward Resemblance of religious expression. They had a form of godliness, but they were denying the power thereof. They had a form, but no force in their life to change them. And I believe that an apostasy or the apostasy is one of the strongest signs of the times that we have today that really speak of the Lord's soon return, that that many people felt to look at. Everyone seems to look at, well, there's wars and rumors of wars. We see that. Or there's earthquakes in various places. We see that going on. There's famines. We certainly see that. There's pandemics. (laughs) We we realize that. Pestilence. But how many believers are aware that there's a great apostasy forewarned even more than these other things? Jesus warned of a great spiritual delusion that would occur just prior to his return. Matthew chapter 24, verse 10 and 11. Jesus said this, At that time many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. He said in verse 24 of Matthew 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will even show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the very elect. Paul the Apostle went on to say in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. A falling away, apostasy. If apostasy was just a small little drip in Jude's day, now it's a raging river that's filling our world very quickly. And Jude is going to bring to us, to our attention, two things when it comes to apostasy, when it comes to going astray. If you're taking notes, we're going to see what leads people astray, number one, and number two, how to keep ourselves from going astray. But here, first, Jude starts with his introduction. He says, look at verse 1. It says that he's Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, Jude was the brother of James, the writer of the book of James. According to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, both Jude and James were half-brothers of Jesus. Now, that's always been interesting to me that Jude didn't list his credentials here. He didn't say, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. You better listen up. He doesn't say that. He simply says, Jude, a servant, choosing to be the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. You see, although James and Jude had grown up in the same household as Jesus, initially they did not believe their brother was the Son of God, the Messiah. But put yourself in the place of these guys going up with Jesus. Jesus was always mom's favorite. You, you know that. You know, she probably said things like, why can't you boys be more like your brother Jesus? No doubt they got tired of always hearing, well, Jesus does this and Jesus does that. I, I don't have to tell Jesus twice to make his bed. He makes it right away. I mean, come on, they were brothers. You know, yes, half-brothers, but still brothers. So what changed James's and Jude's minds. What turned them from skeptics to leaders uh, of the faith? It was the resurrection. Because it was after that event that we see them numbered with the disciples in the upper room according to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. You know, I think sometimes we think, well, if we're just kind of nice to our neighbors, maybe mow their lawn or bring them some cookies or smiling when we drive by, that, that that's going to somehow convert them. They're going to go, oh, look, they're smiling. I need to give my life to Jesus. doesn't work that way. I mean, there was no nicer person than Jesus Christ, and his brothers did not believe on him until the cross, until the resurrection. That's why it's so important for us to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why it's so important for us to speak the truth to people, to be on the offense for the gospel, not just the defense to actually take the time at some point and actually say to your neighbor, I just need to tell you that God loves you so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you life, and you need to be born again. If you just put your faith and trust in Him, you can be saved. And then see their response. They might tell you to get lost, but prayerfully they might respond and even come to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Jude next tells us why he's writing the epistle. Look at verse 3. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this is one of the key verses to the book of Jude. It tells us that when Jude first sat down and started to write this epistle, he had this desire, he had this intent to plan to write them about their common salvation. He wanted to write to them about the things that they all have in common as a as a church about their salvation, the basics of the Christian life. And as he's sitting down, the Spirit of God just moves onto him to go in another direction in order that he might sound a warning concerning the impending apostasy. And I can't tell you there's times where God has done that for me, where, where I, I've been studying all week, and come Friday evening, Saturday morning, I get up and God says, no, I want you to go in a different direction. Go, Lord, could you have told me on Monday? It would have been a little bit better for me. But, but but even this study, praying about what to teach on next, what book to go to, and I kind of studied a little bit on, on the book of Nehemiah while on vacation. I thought, well, we'll go to Nehemiah And then the Lord just said, no, I want you to to look at the book of Jude. So I understand what Jude is doing here. He found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Why did he find it necessary? Because he was not only seeing a falling away, but there was this deception happening within the Christian church as false teachers were coming in and leading people astray. So when Jude says we need to contend earnestly for the faith, he's telling us that we need to take a strong stand against false teachers and false teachings, and we need to stand for the truth. Contend for the faith. The word contend, Webster defines it as to strive against difficulties to struggle for. In other words, there are certain things that are just worth fighting for. Thus the title of my message. message, keep up the fight. Keep walking, keep keep serving the Lord. Why? Well, verse four, because certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our Lord of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude says certain men, he's talking about these apostates that have crept into the church unnoticed. They're creeps, creepers. <laughs> Coming into the church. The word crept in in the Greek means to enter alongside. One commentator puts it to get in by a side door. I think we're seeing a lot of that today in churches. False teaching slipping in the side door, pastors caving into the pressures of the culture around them. I think we've all heard of the word woke, the term woke which in and of itself is not a bad term. It means to be alert to injustice in society, especially racism. Sounds good. That sounds fine. There's nothing wrong with being aware of injustice and oppression. After all, the Bible has a lot to say about God's people, uh, how we ought to respond to injustice. But that's not what's happening today. While being woke may sound like a good thing, it is used by those promoting the critical race theory, those advocates, to turn our culture into an entirely secular society to remove God completely from our society. But you don't hear about that. And as a result, critical race theory has slipped in the side door of many evangelical churches to the point where they're accepting these ideas and even preaching them from their pulpits in their small groups. And you'll hear things like, from pulpits, such as, well, all white people are racist. But even that in itself is a racist thing to say. But it's being said in churches today. Almost a year ago, well-known Pastor Max Lucato asked forgiveness for Christian white supremacy. According to Dr. Bacham in his book, Fault Lines, Pastor David Platt delivered a message from Amos 5, then repented in tears for his white privilege. All of this is a deception and a distraction from the true gospel message of Jesus Christ. And yet more and more false teachers and teachings have entered in the side door of these churches today. And many churches today have thrown doctrine and truth out the window and have replaced it with whatever people want to hear, whatever is popular. I like what Pastor Chuck uh, said many years ago. He says, the trouble is if people want to swim through the sewer with their mouths open, that's their business. He goes on but what they want to do afterwards is to get out and shake it all over me and that makes it my business. That's a problem. Because false teaching affects our relationship with God, but it not only affects that, but it affects our relationship with each other. You see, in Jude's day, he says in verse 4, that they were ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lewdness. In other words, they were taking the doctrines of grace, the teachings of grace, and they were turning it into lewdness the wonderful teaching of the grace of God and perverting it, essentially saying that you can live however you please, you can break whatever commandment you want because God's grace is going to cover it. Greasy grace, cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate, he says. Listen, the grace of God is not a license to sin, rather it should be an incentive to godly living. Yet these false teachers of Jude's day were creeping in saying that you can do whatever you please, God's grace will cover it. Not only that, verse 4 says they were denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, it is a sense of that we understand and have the right doctrine of Jesus Christ. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. If you don't understand who Jesus is, then you don't have a right relationship with God. So Jude here says, so, but, verse 5, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this. In other words, he says, I know you know these things, but we need to remember it. And then what he's going to do next, he's going to go through and give us, in verses 5 through 16, Eight Old Testament examples of men and women who did not earnestly contend for the faith. They were led astray. They gave up the fight. In a sense, they started out good, but then they apostatized. They fell away. They didn't go on to complete their commitment to God. They didn't go on to full salvation. These are things that Jude is going to give us as an Old Testament example of. And, and, and this brings us to our first point, number one. What leads people astray? Eight things. Number one, the first is unbelief. And Jude gives us an example of that in verse 5. He says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now remember that the Israelites are standing on the edge of Canaan, that the land that God had promised them to give them years before. They'd experienced firsthand the delivering power of God when he set them free from the slavery in Egypt. They experienced the sustaining power of God as he provided for them as they were wandering through the the desert. And they experienced the power of God's presence as he led them through the desert with a, a cloud of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And here they are finally standing at what could have been the end of their long journey, ready to enter in, to the promised land. God commands Moses to send some men out ahead of them to spy out the land. Twelve went out. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, let's take this land. It's ours. It's going to be great. The ten other spies comes back, filled with unbelief and fear. And that unbelief then spread throughout the whole camp, the whole congregation of Israel as then the people of Israel cried out, let's go back to Egypt. Let's not go in there. There's giants in the land. There's walled cities and we just can't cut it. So let's go back to Egypt. But this is never going to happen. This is never going to work out. Judas is warning them that unbelief will keep them from entering into all the blessings that God has for them. Same thing for us. Unbelief will keep us from experiencing the blessings that God has for us. I think unbelief is the worst thief of all. Not believing the promises of God. You know, Peter tells us in, in the last days, unbelief will be prevalent. He says in 2 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. We're definitely hearing this today. People in churches denying the second coming of Jesus Christ, denying uh, not only just denying the rapture, people have different views of the rapture, but but, but they're, they're mocking the rapture of the church nowadays, mocking that it's going to happen. Unbelief is set in. People not believing God's word, uh, doubting the promises of God. Listen, belief that glorifies God is future-oriented. It's banking on the promises of God. It's believing what God says in His word is true and right, and not turning from the left or to the right, holding fast to the word of God. But here Jude says unbelief led the people away astray. Next we see pride and rebellion will lead you astray. Look at verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Here Jude mentions angels that fell. This is a reference to the angels that God created which says that they did not keep their proper domain, means that they rebelled against God, Satan leaving them into rebellion, they were kicked out of heaven, separated from God, removed from His presence, and that some of them are so wicked, so horrible, that they're actually incarcerated, and it says here, they are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Again, Satan is the one that led that rebellion, and what was Satan's sin? Pride and rebellion. Read Isaiah 14, the the five I wills that Satan says, and you see it was pride and rebellion that got him kicked out of heaven. Are we not seeing the same thing today? Human pride. You know, pride month, rebellion against God, humanism at its peak. So pride and rebellion will lead people astray. Third thing that Jude brings up is sexual immorality. Look at verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. That word strange flesh certainly describes what we're seeing today men dressed up as women, women dressed up as men, so strange. In fact, that word strange means different from God ordained design. God's ordained design is men or men and woman or woman. Only two genders. God's ordained design is for men to be with woman, woman to be with men, not men with men, not woman with woman. Strange flesh here means anything different from God's ordained design. See, the sin of homosexuality and other types of perversion were the outgrowth of of the complete moral and spiritual uh, uh, breakdown happening during Jude's time when he wrote this. But the thing to me that made Sodom and Gomorrah such a horrible place was the violence that went along with the sexual immorality. And I think we're headed that way as well. Remember, the, 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 the people of Sodom were trying to break down the doors to get to the angels that were inside to commit sexual fornication. And we're seeing that today. We're hearing about it today. Maybe you, you heard this, this is about a week and a half ago. The San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus wrote and recorded a song with these lyrics. And I'm not making this up. It goes, you think we're sinful. You fight against our right. You say we all lead, lead lives you can respect. But you're just frightened. You think that we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked. Funny, just as once you're correct, we'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it. We're coming for your children, we're coming for them, we're coming for your children, for your children. Written, published, video, it's out there. It just gives us, you know, what Romans 1 says. It shows the regression that sin can lead to an individual, to a nation. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship God, worship Him as God, or even give Him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. That's where the world's gone today. They created a God in their own making to justify the sin that's in their lives. Romans one twenty six and 27, Paul goes on, Even the woman turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. You know, there are people that say, well, the Bible doesn't teach against homosexuality. The Bible you know, teaches that we should be all loving and compassionate and, and, and that some people are, are born gay or born with the wrong gender and that there's a gay gene and there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way it is. Well, not according to the Bible. Not according to what we just read. There's no such thing as a gay gene. We're born with a God-given gender and a God-given sexual desire, sexual drive. And when someone lusts after a member of their own sex. It's the twisting of God's ordained design. So what is talking about here. And if you don't want to believe that, then you have to take your Bible and put it aside and make God into a God of your own making. But don't tell me that's what the Bible says or the Bible approves of, of homosexuality. It's not compatible with Christianity. It's a contradiction of God's word clearly. Now, we are to have compassion on any person. I have compassion towards a person who's trapped in a homosexual lifestyle. I have compassion on on any person who's caught up in any other kind of sin. And I don't think that we as a church should go out of our way to hammer people who are in that lifestyle in particular. But at the same time, we need to see it for what it is, identify it for what it is, and compassionately and passionately tell people that there is deliverance through the power of Jesus Christ. This points us to what Pastor Bruce taught a couple weeks ago and the importance of the knowledge of God's Word and the importance of correct theology and doctrine. If we don't know what the Bible teaches, we can get this warped, wimpy concept about God where in the name of love and compassion and sensitivity we set aside what the Bible clearly teaches and we can allow sexual immorality to sneak in a side door and be accepted in the churches today. Listen, I am all for love. Don't get me wrong, but love properly interpreted. Someone put it this way, the rivers of love must flow within the banks of truth. I like that. There can be some crazy things done out there in the name of love. So so we must have truth, have our doctrine in order, and then understand how that love is to be shown. But this illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah, they knew better, but they rebelled against God. and, And here we read the judgment came upon them. Same way Judah is saying these false teachers that are coming in, they're rebelling against God. Uh, They're not only that, but they're rebelling against God's authority. And that's what he brings up next. Likewise, he says in verse 8, Likewise also these dreamers who defile the flesh reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. All authority comes from the throne room of God. Whether it's from the throne of God, rather, whether it's the authority in the home, the church, or the state, and those who exercise authority must first be under authority, accountable to God. But these men, they weren't. These false teachers, they were rejecting divine authority, setting themselves up as their own authority. But what authority do you say that? I say it in my own authority. And that's what they were doing. Then Jude gives a, a perfect example of how ludicrous this is. Look at verse 9. He says, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now apparently Michael the archangel was having a contention with Satan here. Evidently this took place after Moses died. Remember when Moses died, he went up into the hills and that that was it. We don't know where his body was buried, what happened to his body, where he won. Or, uh, but, but think about it. Could you imagine if today they, they found out where the grave of Moses was? I mean, there'd be shrines, there'd be people worshiping that spot, fighting over that spot. It'd be out of control. I think that's one of the reasons God didn't allow it. But for some reason, God has designed that we don't know where Moses was buried. We don't even know what happened to Moses at his death. But evidently, Michael was going to do something with his body, bury it, stash it, something, I don't know. But it's interesting that Jude says apparently Michael the archangel was contending with Satan over it and notice that he doesn't directly rebuke the devil. Even though he was a very powerful archangel, he doesn't say I rebuke you Satan. He doesn't say Satan get out of my face. He doesn't say Beelzebub bug off. He doesn't say any of that. All he says is the Lord rebuke you. See he recognized the authority of Of God, listen, you always want to keep the Lord between you and the devil. There are people that go out and they bind the devil and talk to the devil and rebuke the devil and tell the devil where to go and what to do, and I think he just kind of sits back and laughs. (laughs) Yeah, right. I rebuke you, devil. That's my devil impersonation. Not very good. I'll stick to teaching the Word. But listen, when you say the Lord rebuke you, then he trembles. Always want to keep the Lord between you and the devil. We need to learn from this. Satan is a super being. He's a powerful being. We're no match for him. We need to stay as far away from him as possible and as close to God as we can. I loved our kids' theme for the VBSs last week, and they discovered this secret. Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong on the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's the Lord that keeps The devil at bay as we continue to draw near to him. I love James chapter uh, four, verse seven and eight. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Submitting to the authority of God, the devil will flee as we draw close to him. Draw draw close to the Lord. Uh, Now again, back to these false teachers those who have given themselves over to apostasy. Jude says that these guys in verse 10, they speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts and these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them for they have gone in the way of Cain. But this is the fourth illustration from the Old Testament, that of Cain. What was Cain's problem? It was hatred. It was hatred. Cain hated his brother Abel and he murdered him. That's why... (laughs) We want to make sure we don't have any hatred towards our brothers, towards our sisters. In a little while, we're going to spend communion together. We're going to remember the broken body of our, our Lord and the shed blood. We don't want to come to, to the table with hatred in our heart. We want to confess it. We want to make sure we're right with the Lord. You say, but that person hurt me. That person, he wronged me. It's all right. Forgive him. And leave it in the hands of God. So, unbelief. Pride, sexual immorality, hatred. The fifth thing on the road to apostasy is greed. Look at verse 11. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Now you know the story. Numbers chapter 22, I've shared it many times. King of Moab, Balak came to Balaam knowing that he was a prophet of God and said, There are way too many children of Israel coming my way, so would you curse the children of Israel for me? But even before Balaam asked the Lord, told him not to curse the Israelites. But Balaam didn't listen. Instead, he says to Balak's messengers, Hey, even if you offered me a house full of silver and gold, hint, 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 I wouldn't curse them. And they came back and offered him a house full of silver and gold. And off we went to curse the children of Israel. However, along the way, his donkey started crashing into the wall and smashing his Balaam's foot in the process. And so he starts beating the donkey and shouting at the donkey, you dumb donkey, you crushed my foot. When all of a sudden the donkey actually talks and says, why are you kicking me? Haven't I always been a good donkey to you? And you know, God actually allowed this donkey to speak. Now here's what's amazing. Instead of you know freaking out over a speaking donkey, he talks to the donkey and answers him. I'm kicking you because you won't move. And then Balaam's eyes were open and he saw why the donkey wasn't moving. The angel of the Lord was standing in front of the donkey, blocking its way. Balaam was reminded that God was telling him to speak only what he would put in his mouth. We know the story. He didn't listen. Later, he would tell Balak that he can't curse the Israelites, but if you'd send the Moabites and to them, that uh, with all the little false gods and the Israelite men, will will see them and get involved with them, and, and God will have to judge them for worshipping these idols. That's exactly what happened. But Jude's point here is that, that greed is what set in to Balaam. And greed is what drove these false teachers, and greed is, is, will pull you away from your walk with the Lord. Years ago, a poll was taken for a book called The Day America Told the Truth. 100 Americans were asked what they would do for $10 million. 25% would abandon their families. 23% would become a prostitute for a week. 7% would kill a stranger. Think about that. In a gathering of 100 Americans, there are 7 who would consider killing you if the price was right. If there are 1,000, there would be 70 wanting to kill if the price was right. That's what greed brings, Jude says, causing people to go astray. And then Jude brings up uh, at the end of verse 11 those that perished in the rebellion of Korah. Uh, and that's uh, the, the fifth one. Uh, Korah's and was envy. We find that story in number 16. Korah came alongside and said, Hey, Moses, who made you the big ensalada, the big kahuna? How come you think you're in charge? I think we can do better. I think we can do a much better call on the shots. Moses is okay. Everyone with Korah, stand over there with Kor. Everyone on the Lord's side, stand over with me. Let's see what happens. And we know the story. The earth opened up, swallowed Korah and the gang, and the earth closed back up again. Swoosh, they're gone. Lord took care of them. Giant sinkhole. Gone. Radical. See, here's an easy way to find yourself in a sinkhole. Be envious of another person's position and then rebel against them. Be careful if you're saying, I've got to do whatever it takes to, to gain that guy's position. i got to be the one. Be careful of, of the envying of someone else's job or someone's ministry. Beware of putting other people down in order to lift yourself up. You don't know what's headed for you. You don't see what you're getting into. And before you know it, your world could come crashing down upon you. Instead, you need to just rest in the place that God has you. He'll put you right where you need to be. This doesn't mean we shouldn't want to be all that God has for us, but that we should just be aware that envy can creep into our lives and rob you of the blessings that God desires for your life. So Jude says, these are the things that can lead us astray. Unbelief, pride, rebellion, sexual immorality, hatred, envy, greed, and envy. And then he says, those who practice these things, look at verse 12. They are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carrying about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Selfishness, pride, all these things we just looked at, spots in our our love feast. Jude uses a number of metaphors to describe these false teachers. Now we're going to have a love feast tonight, 5.30, bratwurst and hamburgers. It's going to be great food. It's going to be a great time of fellowship. Afterwards, our baptism. Imagine some people coming out to it that, that uh, don't know the Lord. They're caught up in their pride and rebellion and sexual immorality and hatred and greed and envy. And, and they're, they're taking all of our food and they're saying, they say, God approves of this and, and, and all these things. I mean, you're going, man, you, you're ruining our picnic. It's like ants in a picnic, ruining everything, spots in your love feast. That's what these false teachers are doing. They're coming in when they have their, 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 their potlucks, their, their, their feasts, and, and uh, uh, they'd, they'd have the food, then they'd have communion. They're coming in and just making a mockery of everything. Jude describes them as a cloud that is promising to bring rain that doesn't deliver, a tree that is supposed to have fruit by, but it's not producing fruit, withered in its roots. He says in verse 13, they're like raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Why is the Lord coming, verse 15, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. (laughs) Do you get the idea that these guys are ungodly? (laughs) Four times in one sentence, they're called ungodly. But we also have an interesting reference to Enoch. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just to say that this is the only place in the New Testament where we have a reference to Enoch, and he's prophesying of the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes with the church, with his saints, it says with ten thousands of his saints. That prophecy is not found in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 5, we have the record of Enoch, but we're told nothing about this prophecy God apparently did not want the book of Enoch in the canon of Scripture or it would be there. You can be sure of that. Godly men recognized that it was an apocryphal book, but it was, uh, but it was one prophecy that God wanted to put into his holy word, the prophecy concerning the coming of Christ with the saints. But we do read what, what's going to happen. He's coming at the second, coming to execute judgment on all, to convict all who were ungodly among them over their, all their ungodly deeds. And then he further describes them in verse 16. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Big fancy words to play into man's emotions, and then butter one another up about how wonderful each other is. Kind of a mutual admiration club. I read that, and I really can't help think of the politicians we have in our country today. You know? They live total and godly lifestyles, walking according to their own lusts, using big words of praise for each other, pat each other on the back so they can gain advantage from patting each other on the back. And and, and these things are leading people astray today as it did during Jude's time. Finally, this brings us to our second point as we close and enter into a time of communion. How to keep ourselves from going astray. Look at verse 17 through 19. Jude writes, But you, beloved... Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. These are, are, are not examples, Jude says, of saved people who lost their salvation He says, but in their apostasy, in their turning away from the faith, we see that they never truly had faith to begin with. They were never truly born again, not having the Spirit, verse 19 says. But then Jude makes a contrast in verse 20. But you, he says, you and I were told, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Three words here seem to sum up what we are to do to keep us from going astray. Building, praying, and looking. You want to keep yourself from going astray? Keep yourself in the love of God. Then you need to be building, praying, and looking. First build, First 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Every day we're building, either a spiritual way or a fleshly way. Every day we're either sowing to the Spirit or we're sowing to the flesh, and reaping corruption. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul reminds us that we are to take heed how we build our lives. He says, No other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So how do we build ourselves up in the holy faith? The answer, Romans 10.17, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I am to build myself up in the faith. How do I do that? How do I expand my faith? How do I develop more faith? By hearing God's word. Faith grows by, stu- faith grows by study of and obedience to the word of God. Right now, we're here, we're building up uh, yourself in the most holy faith. You've carved some time out, you're here, you made it a priority to be here on Sunday morning. That's what we all need to do. Next, Jude says we need to be praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Now, I don't believe that you have to pray in tongues for it to be considered praying in the Holy Spirit. I do believe in speaking in tongues, and I do believe that it's a gift that is available for believers today, but I don't think that exclusively that it's the only way to pray in the Spirit. I believe that praying in the Holy Spirit means that you're praying with the Holy Spirit's leading and and power and guidance and direction as you pray. That you surrender your heart, your mind, your thoughts to the Holy Spirit. And you invite the Holy Spirit to guide you and lead you in the very things that you're praying about and praying for. So when you're praying, your prayers are actually prompted by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that's bringing to your mind the things that He wants us to pray for. Directing our prayers. Now, the Word of God and prayer go together. As you're in God's Word, as you're growing up in your holy faith, God's laying on your heart, things you need to be praying for. And as you read and pray, you're going to hunger more for the Word of God, working together. Then Jude says, at the end of verse 21, we need to be looking. The third thing, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. Building, praying, looking. want to keep yourself from going astray? then keep looking to the Lord's return at any moment. John says it this way in 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. But get this, he says, and everyone who has his hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. This means if I'm living my life with a sense of expectation that Christ could come back at any moment, it's going to keep me from going astray. Unlike John, we could say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I think we can add a fourth step to help keep us from going astray, and that is being a witness for Christ. And Jude talks about that. Look at verse 22. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others stay with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So fourth thing, witnessing, telling others about Jesus. There's some people, you know, you can look at them and you just tell them about the love of God and have compassion on them and, and God's grace and mercy and they'll come to faith in Christ. Other people, you tell them they're going to go to hell in a handbasket if they don't repent, they're going to burn. Whoa, that freaks them out. But they need to hear about hell. They need to hear about God's judgment and hellfire. I mean, do, do you ever think about that and actually tell them about hell? I've been in both situations. I've been uh, shared witnessing with people and just telling them that hey, Jesus loves you and he, he wants you to repent of your sin and come to faith in Christ. He died on the cross for you. And, and can I pray with you? Yeah, I want my sin forgiven. I want to be born again. They get saved. Others, you know, they, they, they're kind of more rejecting what you're saying. I say, well, okay, if you want to reject what, what I'm saying, I'm going to tell you, you know what? Heaven's real and hell is real. And if you reject Jesus Christ, you're going to be separated from God for all eternity in a place of torment where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth where, where the fire is never quenched. Uh, I mean, if you choose to reject Jesus Christ, I want to make it very clear to you, you will go to hell. You'll be judged for your sins. Oh, you're just a fire and brimstone preacher. Yeah, Okay, I am. But maybe that's what you need to hear. That's what Judas is saying here. We need to have compassion, making a distinction, but others stay with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Some people need to hear about hell. Some people need to hear about God's compassion and grace and mercy. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. May I ask, when was the last time you shared your faith? We all need to challenge our own hearts and say, Lord, I haven't shared lately. Give me new boldness. Give me new courage. Help me, Lord, to speak. When you pray a prayer like that, God will answer that prayer. So to keep us from going astray, we need to get excited about witnessing, telling others about Jesus, building up our faith, praying in the Spirit, looking for Jesus' return, sharing our faith. Seems like a tall order. But listen, as we do these things, we're keeping ourselves in the love of God, then Jesus does His part. Look at verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. God is able to keep you and I from stumbling, to keep us from falling. I don't believe we're able to keep ourselves I truly believe that we must trust in God's grace and mercy to keep us from falling. We need to humbly come before the Lord and say, Lord, you need to keep me from falling. Lord, I know I would wander off the path if it wasn't for your Holy Spirit. Pray those prayers. Finally, Jude closes with this, verse 25. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Who is God? God. Who is our Savior? Jesus Christ. Jesus. Who alone is wise? God. Jesus is God. If you wanted to know the place that Jesus Christ should have in your life, especially in these days of apostasy, here it is in this marvelous benediction to God our Savior. Clear uh, description that Jesus Christ is God. And He should be the Lord of our lives. Glory should be given to Him. We should glorify Him. We should tell of how great He is, how wonderful He is, how mighty He is, and how mighty to save He is. He is the majestic majestic King of kings, Lord of lords. He is mighty. All power is given to Him in heaven and on earth. Folks, as bad as our world seems to be getting, this world has not slipped out from under His control. All authority belongs to Him. Whether people like it or not, every knee will bow before Him. And we, in these last days, as God's children, need to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ to hold Him up before an evil, Christ-opposing and rejecting world to keep fighting the good fight. As we close and enter a time of communion, we need to really examine our hearts. Maybe see if we've been trusting in greasy grace, cheap grace. Maybe see if we've been traveling down that road of apostasy, allowing some of these things to come into our lives. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it again, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Maybe we've allowed unbelief or pride and rebellion or sexual immorality or hatred or greed or envy to come in. We need to spend this time saying, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. Maybe you've realized you need to be building, praying, and looking. Maybe you haven't been doing that. Maybe you haven't been caught up in those, those, those things that are pulling you away, but you haven't been doing what we should be doing, building and praying and looking, building on the foundation of Jesus Christ and His Word, praying for God to move again in this country, in our lives presently looking for His soon return. Maybe this morning you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. I would pray that before we even enter into communion, you see that's first and foremost what you need to do. Surrender to Him. Say, Lord, take control of my life. As we enter in a time of communion, let's pray, Lord, examine my heart. See if there's anything there I need to confess of love. I need to turn, Lord, I need to turn from that and turn to You this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time this morning. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, that we are able to gather together as a church to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to lift one another up, Lord, before You, the needs of one another. Thank you for the grace that you've given to us, Lord. Not a cheap grace, but a grace that costs you plenty. That you died for our sins so that we might have this life. Lord, we we got what we never deserved. Your love, your forgiveness, your grace. Lord, as we now enter into this place of communion, Lord, help us to be able to just examine our hearts. Lord, if there's any wicked way in there, Lord, Help us to turn from it. Lord, if it's a sin of commission, our own mission, Lord, we haven't done what you've called us to do, Lord. Help us to be right with you this morning as we enter into communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.